you know, individual popes could go to hell. You know, they, their, their faith is not guaranteed. But he says the second privilege, without a doubt, did extend to Peter's successors, uh, meaning that they could never teach something against the faith or that there would never be found one in the sea who would ever teach against it. So how do we understand that? And then Bellarmine finishes by saying, the power of Peter's keys does not extend to the point that the Supreme Pontiff can declare not sin, what is sin? Um, in fact, this would be to call evil good and good evil, something that will always has been and will always be very far from the one who is the head of the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So of all the confusing things on the planet today, none is more confusing than Pope Francis and what is going on in Rome. And on that matter, uh, today we're celebrating or recognizing the 60th anniversary of the start of the Second Vatican Council, also of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, it certainly seems like we're reliving some of that now. And wouldn't it have been great to have an expert on the papacy uh, to speak to us, to give us some explanation of what is going on. We have that for you today with the return of Dr. Edmund Maza to the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Dr. Mazza, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a blessing to be with you. Well, let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Father and of the Son, Son and of the Holy, Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, we are in the midst of absolute craziness. We have just seen the proposals from the German Synod for the Synod on Synodality. We've seen the Belgian bishops just proffer a blessing for homosexual couples. We then learned that, um, at least according to one of those bishops, bishops, Bishop Bonney said that Pope Francis agrees with him. Many suggested in the church that, well, if the bishop's conference has put out a blessing for homosexual couples, obviously the Pope has to correct it. Of course, there's been silence from Rome. But at the same time, we have Father James Martin and his promotion by the Pope himself. And everybody knows his stance is in line with the Belgian bishops. Yet we know that the church can't change its teaching. So we're in utter confusion and hoping you can bring us some light. Well, I'll certainly do my best, but I just want to say right off the bat that uh, unlike uh, Papa Bergoglio, I don't have a direct connection to the great Western grandmother. So I, I may not, I may not, I, I may be lacking. Um, but uh, so this this business of synodality has its roots over 60 years ago in something called collegiality. And this was something that was one of the biggest aspects of the Second Vatican Council, which, as you pointed out, we are commemorating the 60th anniversary of the opening of the council this week. 
But it's interesting that Pope John the Twenty Third, the the Pope who called the Council, when he was elected at the Conclave in October of 1958, uh, I'd like to read to you a, a brief uh, exchange between a certain monk, uh, and who was actually it turns out was a close friend of John the Twenty Third, uh, and uh, he was talking with his uh, abbot, uh, and he said uh, that John that was going to be elected and that John was going to call uh, an ecumenical council. He, uh, he says here, let me see if I can find the dialogue here, that the monk's name was Dom Lambert Bodwin. Uh, probably nobody's ever heard of this person, <clears throat> but he had a big influence. He was a Belgian monk who in the 1920s was experimenting with the liturgy and getting, uh, making plans to have the laity actively participate. He was also one of the leading figures in the budding ecumenical movement. And actually, uh, Pope Pius XI had to come down on him and e sort of exile him from his uh, monastery uh, because he, he sort of went too far in that direction. Uh, you might re remember that uh, Pope Pius XI issued an encyclical uh, basically saying that Catholics cannot participate in these Protestant uh, ecumenical uh, exchanges. But um, I'll just read from the, from the diary here. Um, in 1958, Father Roger Pullman found himself one day at Chavinton in Father Bodwin's room, and the two engaged in a crude dialogue about the ailing Pius XII. Bodwin, I warn you, he will die very soon, and his steward will be Roncalli. And for those that don't know, that was the name, that was the, the given baptismal name of John the 23rd. Um, and, um, and Pullman said that nuncio from Paris and the, the monk Bodouin said, well, yes, you'll see. He'll announce the council and he'll do it from an ecumenical perspective. Uh, and then during the conclave itself on October 28th, 1958, uh, there was a meeting and Father Bodwin repeats like a mantra, Roncalli will become Pope and declare an ecumenical council. So uh, the genesis for the idea of the council uh, owes itself in large part to this obscure Belgian monk that nobody's ever heard of before. Um, now I actually talk about this in an upcoming course that I'm offering online, which is a history of the papacy. Uh, and so if folks want to learn more about that, they can go to edmundmaza.com. But we're going to be exploring the early popes and councils and how they relate to these controversial questions that we're looking at today. Uh, and I'll just finish by saying that uh, in a letter to uh, a Vatican scholar, uh, Cardinal Sewins, who uh, was one of these uh, questionable Belgian prelates at the Second Vatican Council, uh, he actually said in a letter that uh, how did Pope John the Twenty Third come up with the idea for a council? Well, it's partly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he says, "quote I believe that Father Lambert Bodwin played an important role when Ron when Cardinal Roncalli, the future Pope, was an apostolic delegate in Istanbul. He held talks on the subject, and Bodwin argued at length with him about the need." to balance Vatican Council I 
after the promulgation of a new council that would work out uh, these unfinished questions. In other words, Vatican Council One was focused on the, the powers of the papacy, and maybe we'll get into a little bit of that later. But these people that were interested in collegiality, they wanted to make the main thrust of the Second Vatican Council, I'm sorry to say, to weaken the power of the centralized papacy and increase the power of the bishops. Uh, and that's where we get this idea of collegiality. Okay. Um, obviously, I think the idea of collegiality has been taken far, far, far away when you had, you know, individual good bishops in a country who <clears throat> tried to do the right thing on, on pro-life or, or pro-family pro things. They're often smacked down by the bishops conference, but we were quick to point out there's not supposed to have any real authority, but nonetheless that happened. Yes. Um, you see, traditionally, the ecclesiology of the church was that the jurisdiction of the bishops, their power to govern, is given to them by the Pope, by the Holy Father, that all jurisdiction in the church is, is his, and then that flows down to the bishops that he appoints, Bishop of Milan, Bishop of Paris, etc. But Vatican II actually changed that, which is hard to understand because Cardinal Ottaviani, who was the head of the Holy Office back then, thought that it was theologically certain that this question had been settled, that uh, jurisdiction comes to the bishops uh, from the Pope. But at, at the Second Vatican Council, that language, in fact, the, the preparatory schemas for the Second Vatican Council, which were prepared ahead of time, were rejected by the Council Fathers, I believe, very early on. And uh, what they did was they threw out the old schemas and the old schema said what I just told you, that bishops get their power to govern from the Holy Father. But the, the new language that was voted on and approved that went into Gaudium et Spes, oh, no, excuse me, Lumen Gentium, the, the language that went into Lumen Gentium chapters 22 and 23 is that when a bishop is consecrated, when he receives ordination as a bishop, then the council says he receives uh, that not only the, the munis to, uh, to teach and to sanctify, but also to govern. And so this has become quite controversial because the progressives, the leftists at the council, use this as a tactic of weakening the central authority of the pope and increasing the authority or the synodality of these synods of bishops or conferences of bishops for their own, for their own ends. Hmm. So... We are confronted today in the church with something very severe. Um, I was just at a conference, the Catholic Identity Conference, and I was asked a question by Timothy Flanders, who writes for 1 Peter 5. Uh, great guy, great journalist. But he asked a very clear question. It was very hard to answer. It was, you know, Catholics are known for their obedience and allegiance to the Pope. And yet there we were at a conference talking about resistance, in effect, to that very pope. So <laughs> I, I told him, I, I'm not a theologian. I told him, I, I don't know how, I, I don't know how to answer. The only thing I know how to answer is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a father and a Catholic, and there's no way I can let my children's faith uh, be corrupted 
by what I know is untrue. Because I think as Catholics, we should know the basics of the faith and they don't change. So very difficult indeed. I'd love to hear your take on it. Thank you, John Henry. Again, I don't have my lucky turkey bone with me, but I will give this a shot. Um, <laughs> you know, in addition to my course, the, my course on the history of the papacy, uh, which I'm also in a few weeks from now going to be releasing a book by the grace of God. It's called The Pope and the Prayer of Christ. And basically, I go through the exegesis on Luke chapter 22, verse 32, down through the centuries. And let me just read that. It's a very short passage. Um, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Now, um, I'll, I'll just cut to the most important commentator on this passage, and that is St. Robert Bellarmine, who was a great figure of the Counter-Reformation, who was a doctor of the church, and was the principal person that the Council Fathers at Vatican I turned to when they tried to, to, to come up with the dogmas, the wording of the dogmas of the, of the Holy Father, how when he speaks ex cathedra, uh, he is infallible. However, Robert Bellarmine would go further than that. Uh, I mean, everybody, I, not everybody, but most Catholics today would know that on certain occasions when the Pope speaks from the chair of Peter, he is guaranteed not to be able to teach error on faith and morals. But this exegesis of Luke 22 goes a little further than that. I'll just, I'll just read St. Robert. Bellarmine says that um, there are two privileges here that Christ is giving to St. Peter. One, that he personally could not ever lose the true faith when he was tempted by the devil. The second privilege is that he, as quote-unquote Pope, could never teach something against the faith, or that there would never be found one in his see who would teach against the true faith. And then Bellarmine says, from these privileges, we see that the first did not remain to his successors, uh, meaning that you know individual popes could go to hell. You know, they, their their faith is not guaranteed. But he says the second privilege, without a doubt, did extend to Peter's successors, uh, meaning that they could never teach something against the faith, or that there would never be found one in the sea who would ever teach against it. So how do we understand that? And then Bellarmine finishes by saying, the power of Peter's keys does not extend to the point that the Supreme Pontiff can declare not sin. What is sin? Um, in fact, this would be to call evil good and good evil, something that will always has been and will always be very far from the one who is the head of the church the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Those, those are some very strong claims that we can always rely upon the popes to, to teach us properly. Well, the problem with that is there's a little fly in the ointment is that there's a handful of popes down through the centuries who seem to have taught error in some capacity in some way. For example, Pope Liberius. 
Pope Liberius lived at the time of the great Arian heresy. And a, uh, a, an Arian emperor basically put Pope Liberius in exile and replaced him with uh, an anti-pope, Felix. Now, historians differ because of the sources and because it was so long ago. They differ whether or not Pope Liberius may have signed, obviously under duress, a, uh, a semi-Arian formula that Christ was of like substance with the Father and not of the same substance as the Father as declared at the Council of Nicaea. Anyway, how does St. Robert Bellarmine interpret this? And this goes back to your original question. What are non-theologians supposed to make when a, of the situation when a pope, a putative pope, right, is making what seems to be putative heretical statements? This is what St. Robert teaches. Bellarmine says, the Roman clergy stripping Liberius of his pontifical dignity, they went over to Felix, whom they knew to be a Catholic. And from that time, from that time, Felix began to be the true pontiff. And listen to this next line, because this is a, a mic drop moment. For although Liberius was not a heretic, nevertheless, he was considered one on account of the peace that he made with the Arians. And by that presumption, the pontificate could rightly be taken from him. And this next line just blows everybody away. For men are not bound or able to read hearts. But when they see that someone is a heretic by his external works, they judge him to be a heretic, pure and simple, and condemn him as a heretic. Hmm. Um, now, wow. I, I, could, I could build on this point by bringing up a more contemporary example, if you want me to. It would be interesting, only because these issues are so contentious. I, I think at this point, after some nine years, most of the faithful have seen this go on and on and on and on. I went through a laundry list in my talk, but if there is another example of another pope, that would be, I think, uh, very interesting. Well, what I'll say is this, as you, as you allude to, uh, just last month, uh, Bishop, um, I guess it's Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, mm -hmm. and uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider of Astana, Kazakhstan, and uh, Bishop Henry Grisida and others, other bishops, other lay people, uh, rightly pointed out that uh, in his uh, Desiderio Desiderati, Desiderati, uh, yeah, that uh, Bergoglio issued last June on on the day that he gave uh, he allowed Holy Communion to be given to Nancy Pelosi, uh, basically says the only thing that you need to receive Holy Communion worthily is uh, faith, uh, which as as the authors of the document point out and the signers uh, uh, agree with. That goes against, that's material heresy. That goes against the teachings of the Council of Trent. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a difference the, between... Yeah, what they, what they said was they drew that direct connection. They said, in their own words, that it was contradicting the faith. And then they just quote from the Council of Trent, which calls that belief heresy. So it was the most formal correction of Pope Francis, I think, that, that ever was. Yeah, yeah. And... and 
we should point out to the folks the difference between formal heresy and material heresy. Now, material heresy is when a person uh, writes or speaks something that is against a, a dogma of the church which has to be held with divine and Catholic faith. Um, there are some websites that list these, uh, these items that are taken from the councils from statements of the popes in, in, in Denzinger. Um, there's, there's maybe 200, 300 different statements that would fall under the category of de fide. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just any statement that can be a heretical statement. It's got to be something that goes directly against one of these uh, statements that has to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. Um, so this, this, is, this particular issue, for example, is one of them. This, the, it is the Council of Trent condemned as anathema uh, anyone who who does not uh, anyone who says that faith alone is enough to worthily receive holy communion um but let me uh give you an example here um of what well perhaps in fact this person um john henry maybe you even might have known him personally uh cardinal alphonse stickler uh mm. Cardinal Stickler, Don't know him personally, but yeah. he was a professor of canon law, and he was the official librarian for the Vatican. Uh, and he was a great friend of the traditional mass. Uh, he, he, I remember he said a mass, I think it was at St. Agnes's Church, you know, in midtown Manhattan back in the 1990s. And he defended the position that the Tridentine mass was never forbidden uh, or proscribed which Benedict XVI, when he issued Summorum Pontificorum in 2007, confirmed. Uh, so he was a great friend of tradition. And back in the early 70s, Cardinal Stickler, because he was a great scholar, he answered another scholar who was attacking the idea that the church has always taught uh, about papal infallibility. And this is what uh, Cardinal Stickler says in his response to this uh, scholar. He says, the Pope stands for the church, which has never erred, which cannot err in questions that involve eternal spiritual salvation. Therefore, he, he the Pope, is the absolute and consequently implicitly infallible guarantor of the truth which one who wishes to be Catholic must profess. He and the Church of Rome can never be conceived as two disjunct or even less opposed things. The Roman pontiff is the Church of Rome, and therefore the inerrancy of the Church of Rome is the inerrancy of the Roman pontiff. If the person of the Pope becomes a heretic, he no longer holds the office of Pope. Just as a judge who has become clinically insane, even though he remains the same person, can no longer be regarded as a judge as far as the effects of the office are concerned. Consequently, there is no difficulty in referring to the Pope, uh, the affirmation of the canonists who exclude the possibility of error on the part of the Church of, of Rome. Um, and so, what uh, what Cardinal Stickler is saying here is that, in fact, he, he adds this. He says, if the Pope really 
errors in matters already defined, he is no longer Pope and therefore does not compromise and cannot compromise papal infallibility. So if I was to sum that all up, what Cardinal Stickler, who just said this a few decades ago, was arguing is that as far as he was concerned, if we look at the history of the Catholic Church, if we look at the history of the Roman See, of the papacy, there has never been a pope who directly opposed something that was already defined as a matter of faith and morals. Uh, uh, there have been popes who have used ambiguous phrases. For example, there was uh, Pope Honorius. Pope Honorius lived in the, uh, I guess it was at the time of the controversy over the will of Christ. He wrote a letter in which he made it sound like Christ had only one will, where actually a ecumenical council was subsequently held that said Christ has two wills. Um, and so people point to him as a heretic, but he really wasn't a heretic because it had not been defined yet. He was not contradicting something that had been defined. Pope John XXII, who lived in the 1300s, uh, as a private person, as a private teacher, was spreading the idea that we don't see God directly after we die. We have to wait until the general judgment. And people at the time and people since then have said, oh, that's, that's heretical. But technically speaking, it had not yet been defined. In the case that we have right now with uh, Pope Francis and the Council of Trent, this is something that's already been defined. So it's impossible that a pope could contradict that. And according to Cardinal Stickler, he would automatically lose his office. Now, I have to add this because this is supremely important. And that is that the church teaches, and you can find this, I can give you the quotes. You can find this in, for example, the good manualists who wrote before the Second Vatican Council, like uh, Dr. Ludwig Ott, the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. You can even find it in, uh, of all people, uh, the notorious theologian Karl Rahner. Back in the 1940s, Pope Pius XII issued an encyclical, Mystici Corporis Christi, on the mystical body of Christ, in which he said that uh, heretics, schismatics, and apostates are not members of the church. And Karl Rahner, uh, it was the, the young Karl Rahner, uh, in an article a couple of years later, says, in fact, it's the un almost unanimous opinion uh, of the theologians that even just a material heretic, someone who might be objectively innocent and guiltless before God, is not a member of the visible church. And what's the consequence of that? Someone who's not a member of the visible church cannot hold a position of authority within the church. So a bishop or a cardinal or even a pope who is not an, an, an occult heretic, someone who is secretly heretical, but if that person were a public, even just a material heretic, but a public one, a manifest one, that person would automatically lose their office. Uh, and um, the, uh, we see here the Cardinal Stickler and St. Robert Bellarmine would, would agree with that position. 
Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. I think Bishop Schneider seems to be of the opinion, the contrary opinion, that basically any, uh, it doesn't matter about heresy per se. Uh, the Pope is the Pope because he's recognized that way. And uh, therefore, nothing can be done other than prayer and realizing that God's in charge. Um, but I guess from what you're saying, Bellarmine would have had a, a different position on that. Precisely. And I, I love Bishop uh, Bishop Schneider. Uh, I love the good work that he does. Mm -hmm. But we actually have a, a council, an ecumenical council of the church. I'll read it to you. It's very brief. The, the Council of Constantinople that was held in the year 869, it says the following. And they're quoting Pope Adrian II, who a few months earlier held a council in Rome. And his document was read aloud at Constantinople IV, which is one of the ecumenical councils of the church. And it says, quote, this is, you know, Pope Adrian talking here. Although we have read of the Roman pontiff having passed judgment on the bishops of all the churches, we have not read of anyone having passed judgment on him. For even though Honorius was anathematized after uh, his death by the Easterners, it should be known that he had been accused of heresy, which is the only offense where inferiors have the right to resist the initiatives of their superiors and are free to reject their false opinions. Now, let me try to explain this because my PhD is actually in medieval history. So I know a thing or two about how this has worked out through, through the centuries. There's an old adage, and it's in canon law, that the first C, meaning the Pope, the Pope, is judged by no one. That is to say, juridically judged. Now, stick with me on this. Follow the logic of this. Uh, because no one can judge the Pope, there is no Supreme Court of cardinals or something that would be higher than him, that can pass a sentence on him or an emperor or anything like that. So uh, some people have said that the way to deal with our current situation is to have what's called an imperfect council. But the problem with that is that uh, if you, you know, in, in American jurisprudence, we have this notion, right, that you are innocent until proven guilty. Now, if we applied the same principle to the Pope, we would have to say that he is Pope until he is proved not Pope, right? But the problem is, if you went into an official proceeding with cardinals and bishops or whoever, from the Eastern Church, the Western Church, if you went into those proceedings, assuming that he is the Pope, you know, presuming that he's the Pope, it could never pass a sentence on him. Because again, the first C is judged by no one. So the only time a group of cardinals or a council could ever get together is simply to acknowledge something that has already taken place 
ipso facto, or otherwise it would be an illegitimate council, if you follow my, my meaning. Now, uh, I could bring up another historical example that, that people may not have heard of, where a, a layman uh, took it upon himself to judge that his bishop was a, a flagrant uh, heretic. And this was the case in Constantinople around the year 430, when uh, a, a lawyer by the name of Eusebius, who worked for the emperor, was in the, the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia, when its new bishop, Nestorius, gave an infamous sermon in which he claimed that Mary was not the mother of the Logos. She was not the mother of God. She was not the Theotokos, the God-bearer. She was more like uh, his valet. Uh, she, she dressed him in human, anyway. Um, that, that layman stood up and said that that's heresy. Not only did he stand up in the church and correct his bishop publicly, but he put together a document, you can find this online, it's called the Contestatio, in which he takes statements from his bishop, Nestorius, and compares them to Paul of Samosota, who, who lived a couple of generations earlier, and who was a heretic because of his re rejection of certain beliefs concerning the divinity of Christ. And he, com he compares their statements. And at the beginning of this Contestatio, he says, Whoever reads this document, and he, he, put, he, he put it up everywhere. He put it up inside Hagia Sophia. He put leaflets throughout the city. Whether you're a, a clergy, a monk, or a layperson, I, I bind you under an oath to, to declare with me that the heresies of this bishop, because he's, he's talking just like Paul of Samosota. What was the end result of this? Well, the end result is that Pope Celestine I wrote to Nestorius, uh, and uh, I won't I won't bore you with the long with the long letter, but he basically tells him, uh, someone like you is deserving of anathema uh, from the moment that you began to preach this, and from the moment that you began to preach this, you could not excommunicate anybody, or you know put somebody into schism, and in fact the whole city has deserted you. And the Pope was saying, you know, good for them. Uh, and, and he never sanctioned Eusebius. In fact, Eusebius would later go on to become a bishop himself. Uh, and, um, and of course, Pope Celestine and St. Cyril of Alexandria uh, got the Council of Ephesus done in 431, which formally declared the, the Marian dogma that Mary is the Theotoko. She is the God-bearer. Uh, and so, and and so, Nestorius has has ever since been a, a very infamous uh, heretic. Um, so, if we follow the same principle here, uh, and if we follow what Saint uh, Robert Bellarmine says, is that you know people cannot read hearts, but when they see that someone is a heretic by his external works, they judge him to be a heretic, pure and simple. Uh, and he says that the the people who did that in Rome. Uh, were justified in stripping Liberius of his pontifical dignity and accepting Felix as Pope, even though, technically speaking, uh, Pope Li Liberius was not a, a formal heretic. At best, he was a material heretic. But uh, for Robert Bellarmine and for Karl Rahner and for Cardinal Stickler and for Ludwig Ott, and I could, I could name other people, E. Sylvester Berry, um, 
uh, at other manualists before Vatican II, they say the Pope falls ipso facto for the very reasons I pointed out earlier. Because if you if, if you if you were to put the Pope on trial and assume that he's innocent, you, you'd you'd be wrong from the, from the get go because this, the Holy See is judged by no one. Exactly. Well, one of the <clears throat> one of the last items I wanted to bring up with you that you suggested for the show was that the the idea of the papacy as a sacrament. Anybody who's wondering, uh, I would urge them to go and watch the show that we did before, uh, in which you present your thesis about the papacy, the munus, and the ministerium, um, which you suggest that Pope Benedict XVI uh, did a bifurcation. There was some talk of that by um, his secretary, um, the Pope's secretary. And so it's, I mean, it's a thesis that is out there. It's making waves and uh, very, very controversial, obviously. But nonetheless, it it's provides one explanation of what's going on. But in terms of what you said regarding the papacy as a sacrament uh, being indissoluble, where does that come from? Yes. So the traditional teaching about the papacy is that it's not a sacrament. It's not a grade of order. It is simply an office of jurisdiction. And so because it's an office of jurisdiction and not a sacrament, there is no indelible mark on your soul. You can walk away from it. You, you can resign from it. And now that has been the view of the papacy for at least the last 700 years. But what I was, uh, first of all, we were all surprised that Pope, uh, Pope Benedict became Pope Emeritus and not Cardinal Ratzinger again. And that his personal caretaker, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, affirmed in a famous speech at the Gregorian University in 2016 is that Pope, Fran Pope Benedict has actually changed the Petrine ministry in a way that has never been done before and bears no resemblance to what Pope Celestine V uh, did when he resigned, who was the last Pope to actually volu voluntarily, completely volu voluntarily resign. So, um, what I was surprised further to find in my research on this subject is that uh, not only does Pope Benedict in some sense believe that his uh, papacy is sacramental, and so in some ontological sense, he still participates in the See of Rome, but I was nearly floored when I found this quote, which I will read to you from one of the most famous popes in history, uh, Innocent III. Now, Innocent III was the one who approved the rule of St. Francis. He called the Fourth Lateran Council. Um, he's the pope that uh, approved the Dominican order and who um, put the kibosh on uh, Magna Carta for King John of England. But anyway, so this is the, considered the apex of the papacy. Now, I found, I found a sermon that he gave, uh, presumably to the cardinals, to the curia, on the anniversary of his election as Pope. So we're talking about the year 1199. And this is what he says, and so I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> the sacrament, the sacrament between the Roman pontiff and the Roman church perseveres so firm and unshakable that they cannot be separated from one another ever except by death. He goes on to say, 
The apostle says that after her husband dies, a wife is, quote unquote, released from the rule of her husband. A husband joined to his wife does not seek a release. He does not leave her and cannot be dismissed. For, quote, it is according to his Lord that either he stands or he falls, and it is the Lord who judges. So from my perspective, and again, uh, in my online course on the history of the papacy, I, I talk about this. Um, if you go to edmundmaza.com, there's more details. But uh, Pope Innocent here is basically saying that the papacy is a sacrament, is a spiritual marriage, and it's until death do us part. A pope or a husband is not allowed to seek a release. He does not leave her, his bride. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that not only did he proclaim this in words, but in the old St. Peter's Basilica, the, the new one was designed by Michelangelo and Bramante in the 1500s under the direction of Pope Julius II. But in the old St. Peter's, originally built at the time of Constantine, behind the altar in the apse, there's actually a mosaic portraying Innocent III as the bridegroom of the Roman Church. Uh, and on one side of, of Christ is Innocent III, barefoot and wearing a crown, standing facing his bride, the church, who is portrayed as a beautiful woman. Um, now, um, this is a, uh, how shall we say, an apparent contradiction, because about 100 years later, Pope Celestine V actually resigned the papacy. Now, he was in his 80s, and uh, he was completely out of his depth. He was a holy monk, but he, he didn't know how to run a business or how to run an enterprise. And he was only pope for about three months. And he was the only pope, uh, John Henry, I defy anybody to go through the annals of papal history. He's the only pope that we have a, a sure record of who, who just completely voluntarily gave up the papacy. Up until the voluntary resignation of Benedict XVI, we don't have anything like it. Uh, and again, I could go into more detail about that. But the point of it is this, which pope are we supposed to believe if this is magisterial teaching? Pope Innocent III, who said that the papacy is a sacrament and you can't leave it, or are we supposed to believe um, not only um, Celestine V, who resigned, but the, the pope who succeeded him, Pope Boniface VIII. Pope Boniface VIII actually put it into canon law that a pope may resign. It's called the Liber Sextus. Now, of course, it was in his own interest to say that because otherwise he would be an anti-pope, or at least he would be an anti-pope until Celestine died, which actually he helped, to ha he helped that to happen. Uh, Celestine V tried to run away the, the, the troops of, of the soldiers of, of Boniface VIII captured him, put him in a, in a, in a cell, which is, was so short, you, you couldn't even stand up straight. And as a result, I don't want to scandalize people, but not all the popes have been rosy. Most of them have. But Boniface VIII was a little, well, if you don't believe me, read Dante. <laughs> read Dante Alighieri about Pope Boniface VIII. But anyway, long story short, uh, if Innocent III is right, then Boniface VIII would have been an anti-pope until Celestine died, which is like the first two years of Boniface VIII's um, term. Anyway, um, I'm not coming up with this stuff on my own here. I'm, I'm discovering this in history and saying that the bishops, the, the cardinals, they need to read these things. They need to deal with these things. Because if, it, if Innocent III was right, 
and uh, a, a pope cannot resign, well, that would mean that Benedict is still the pope. And that would really clear up the matters that we see here, all these material heresies, the Abu Dhabi declaration by uh, Francis, right? That God wills the uh, plurality of religions, just like he wills the plurality of men and women and, and uh, races. Um, now, it is true that when Bishop Schneider pressed him on that privately uh, uh, and said, Holy Father, you, you meant the indirect will or the permissive will of God. And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. But he never corrected that publicly. And it went into the, if I'm not mistaken, that went into the Acta Apostolica Sadis, which is the magisterial teaching of the church. So we have at least, as far as I can see here, two material heresies, uh, Desiderio Desirati, and we have the Abu Dhabi declarations. And um, what I've been telling you so far, it, to my mind, to, to, at least as far as I've researched it, would seem to account for that. Uh, and I think in a, in, a, in a more rational way than some of the other explanations I've heard so far. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. It, um, <clears throat> it certainly uh, gives us lots to think about. Um, hopefully encourages us to pray that the cardinals take action here because I think the laity are floundering. They are being left in the wind because the winds that are rocking the church are just legion. And if I may and, say this... Um, John Henry, mm -hmm, um, 60 years ago this week, uh, when the shenanigans were going on at the Second Vatican Council by the, by the progressives, which ultimately, as, as Archbishop Lefebvre used to say, the, there were time bombs that, that were put into the documents that would be interpreted after the council in a, in a bad way. You know, God was seeing that. And at the same time, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis between the United States and Russia, Soviet Union. And we came about this close <laughs> to nuclear annihilation, to the Third World War. And if you read old uh, books, if you watch old, old films, the people flooded ch the churches. They understood that we were on the brink of nuclear war. I don't see people flooding churches right now. Um, and we're in a similar situation where we, we're about this close from a, a terrible catastrophe happening. I don't think it's a coincidence that when the, the leaders of the church don't lead as they're supposed to and allow heresy and error to be propagated that god threatens to come down with punishment as our lady of akita said uh fire will fall from the sky uh you know the the, the living will envy the dead uh god is a merciful god but at some point as, as even saint faustina said at some point god's mercy the time of mercy is over and the time of judgment happens we as lay people, we need to pray and do penance and, and pray the rosary because today is right the, is the anniversary of the miracle of the sun at Fatima. And Our Lady said, pray the rosary for peace. And as and again, if I could quote another good bishop, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, in an address that he gave at a Marian shrine in 1972, he said, it's the lady's job to make sure that your bishop is a bishop that your cardinal is a cardinal. And we might add that your Pope is a Pope. It's up to the lady who will save the church by holding these people accountable to be shepherds of the flock, good shepherds and not hirelings. Amen to that. And we've got to do it. We've got to do it not only for our faith and the good of our nation. We've got to do it for our children's faith because that's also what's under attack. 
Edmund Mazin, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much, John Henry. God bless you and God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this video. And to see more like this, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. So check out our links in the description to read more, sign up for our newsletter, and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all of the latest life, family, and culture news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.